Thank you, Anne, very much. Uh, We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13. If you want one of the Bibles that are being given out at the back over there, it's page 1147, page 1147. And in the Pew Bibles, it's encouragingly entitled, A Case of Incest. So, heartwarming stuff. (laughs) I did actually think, why on earth did I get this passage? Uh, And then I remembered that it had fallen to me to divide up 1 Corinthians for this series. And at this point, I'd said the next three weeks are going to be particularly sensitive, so we need to have care as to who speaks. And for some reason, that was construed as volunteering. (laughs) I should know after all these years. Anyway, let's go. And uh, we'll start 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part... Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you're assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy. An idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Just as in the nine, more question marks at the end of that response than there usually are. It's a challenging passage to get our heads round. But before we start going into the passage, let me tell you a story. Uh, about, gosh, 20 years ago, maybe slightly longer, Hilary and I had the privilege of being involved in planting a church in a housing estate in Exeter. And it was a lot of hard work and a lot of fun. And we seemed to collect a kind of ragtail and bobtail collection of interesting stroke-odd people. After a bit, we realised we were making a mistake. We were praying for normal people. 
and we were getting normal people, divorced, kids by different mothers, uh, violence in the family. Uh, and so we stopped praying for normal people and we started praying for abnormal people who were married to the first person they got committed to uh, and so forth. And that prayer was never answered because God, I think, thought our first prayer was a better one. So we had some interesting situations to deal with uh, and none of my training pretty much when I studied theology prepared me for it. There you go. One of the most challenging was a couple who turned up at church. She was in her 50s. He was 17, 18. And uh, they were a lovely couple, mother and son. And uh, we appreciated starting to get to know them. They came every Sunday. And after a bit, we started to think, oh, this is a really affectionate family. And after about, frankly, embarrassingly, four months, we thought, we got this wrong. We've really got this wrong. Um, they were living together. They weren't married. They weren't related. That wouldn't have improved it, of course. Um, and they, they were just um, sleeping together before he went to university. Awkward. And to cut a reasonably long story short, we ended up one evening, Mike, who helped us leave the church, and I went round to see them. Awkward it was. We had a conversation about, as Christians, how they saw marriage and how they saw what they were doing in relation to that. And um, she was sheepish. He was aggressive. Uh, and uh, at one point, after it got slightly heated on their part, not ours, um, she looked at us and said, but we've been to several churches. Why has no one challenged us about this before? And Mike, who was a shop steward at an engineering company and not used to calling a spade an agricultural implement, looked at her and said, because you better believe this isn't a fun way to spend an evening. Nailed it. <laughs> it didn't end well. And they never came to church again. And you wonder whether you've done right. Two years later, I'm walking down the high street, and there coming towards me is this lady. And to my shame, my first thought was, if I cross the road now, she might not see me. And at that moment, she said, hi, Ian. Oh. So I went up and said, hi, how are you doing? And we got through the pleasantries, and she said, oh, I'm back at church again. Uh, we, I've moved, I've gone to church, I've sorted myself out with God. And I've never had the opportunity to say this, but I really want to thank you for doing what you did that evening. I, you know how you have a split second where you're about to encounter someone you think it's going to be difficult, and you run through about 500 scenarios, and that wasn't one of them. She said, I realise it cost you to come out and do that, and I realise you did it because you loved us and you had our best interest at heart, which I was relieved to hear. I think that's... Definitely the most difficult thing I've ever had to do in church leadership. But the situation we read is much more serious. Paul has this appalling situation to deal with. If you were here when we started 1 Corinthians, you'll remember that Corinth was renowned for its immorality. So much so that if you wanted to insult someone about their sexual lewdness and immorality. You called them a Corinthian. 
And here are a couple in the church whose behaviour is offending even the Corinthians. So this is pretty extreme to get the pagans appalled. To have something that non-Christians found intolerably immoral being tolerated within the church. We have a man who's sexually intimate, presumably with his stepmother, but it's not entirely clear from the passage and it won't either edify us or help us to understand it if we go through all the permutations. But their problem is rather than struggling with where they are, they're boasting of it. And Paul was convinced something had to be done. They are, as one of the commentators pointed out, doing evil with delight and persistency. This isn't someone who's just been stupid while they're away at a conference. This is rejoicing in doing something that is deeply immoral. And so Paul confronts the situation for the man's sake and the woman's and, as we shall see in a bit, for the church. Because in this kind of situation, love demands action. And the action is to exclude them, this couple, from the Christian community to bring them to their senses. And that matters because Christian faith is meant to be lived out in community. It, it, it doesn't have the same impact for us today because we think I can be a Christian on myself, in, on, by myself, on my own. And that's an alien thought to the writers of the New Testament. And if we make our Christian faith, faith individualistic, we miss a vital element of what we're called to. Now, let me just stop there for a moment, take a deep breath, back up a little and get some perspective. Because some of you will have just turned up at this church, have been coming for a few weeks and think, they're nice, friendly people. Some of them even look quite normal. But this morning, Ian, you've gone weird. This is really just too heavy. And what I want us to get is that where this passage starts is the end of a process, not the beginning. It's a bit like dipping into an Agatha Christie just as the denouement is going to happen. And you sit there and go, someone's been killed? And everyone here's a suspect? <laughs> and there's a story, a backstory that's got up to that point. And that's what I want to try and fill in. It's one of the problems with 1 and 2 Corinthians. When you look at the books, we know there are other letters. There are 3 and 4 Corinthians, and it's not entirely clear what order they come in. So other stuff has happened that we're not told about. So I want us to stop and ask the question, what's the Christian response when we see someone whose lives are in a mess, who are indulging in sin? And I think the best way to answer that is to ask what God's response is. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's God's first response, gracious sacrificial love and that's our first response or it should be can I just say the inquisition is a really bad model for Christian community <laughs> and there are some people I'm sure none here but if they are please form a queue outside another church who are desperate to become part of the thought police 
pointing out what everyone else has done wrong. That is not a Christian response. So let me, let me suggest three things that you can reasonably assume have gone on before you get to this place. And the first is that the people in the church would have looked at themselves. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? If you don't think there's humour in the Bible, I mean, that's, that's just a bit hysterical, isn't it? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So I think our first calling is to look at other people with the eyes of God, with compassion, and say, there but for the grace of God go I. That's the first thing. The second assumption, I think, is that they're in a community that walks together in relationship and accountability. Because in the church, we're in a, on a journey together. Church, when it's good, is built on real, strong relationships. And you can't know everyone in a service like this. So the church is split down into smaller groups where we get to know one another. It's like family, where someone will say, oh, you know, I've never seen that passage like that. I think it might mean this. Or... I notice you often say that. Do you think God might want that to change? Those kinds of everyday things are the nuts and bolts of accountability and growth. Where we meet together, we support one another, we study the Bible, and we ask people questions. Normal Christian growth is through a whole series of small adjustments and corrections that we make together in community. That's the second thing. And the third thing is that, and it's clear that we're starting this passage at the end of the process that Jesus speaks about in Matthew's Gospel, where when you have something against someone else in the church, you go and speak to them, to speak honestly about the thing that's a difficulty. It's really important that you go and speak to them. There's a Christian version of gossip that goes, Anne's really offended me, and I don't want to upset her, but would you pray with me about this? She hasn't, by the way. Well, not that I can think of, anyway. Um, <laughs> and that's really unhelpful. The thing to do is to speak to the person, and then Jesus says, if they don't listen, then you take someone else along to be the mediator, to make sure you understand what the problem is. And then if that really doesn't reconcile you, then you involve the leadership of the church at whatever ever level might be appropriate. And then, it seems to me, that's where you end up with where we started in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The whole process is meant to be deeply relational rather than legal. A community sharing life together, helping one another to grow. That, I think, is the context behind this difficult situation we read of in 1 Corinthians 5. Let's move on a bit. If you go through to verses 6 to 8, you get this discussion of yeast. I'm going to claim some brownie points by saying I did make bread before I came to church this morning. 
And it always fascinates me how when you put this little sludgy stuff into uh, water and flour, how it puffs up and turns into this delicious thing. If you've ever tried eating yeast raw, don't. It's the kind of thing your two-year-olds do, but don't do it as an adult. And that's the picture here, that when you have sin in a community and it's allowed to grow unchecked, it affects everything. I remember the first time when I was studying theology, I, I read seriously church history. And there's an Oxford series on church history, and it's about six books, so you can read through the whole history of the church. When you get to the Dark Ages, it, you just wonder why you bothered joining the church. With church history, it can be fantastically thrilling when you read of some of the missionary pioneers. It can be deeply depressing and disturbing. How did people think the Inquisition was a great way of promoting Jesus' values? And of course, the answer is no one woke, out, woke up in the morning and thought, I've got it, let's torture people. That would be a good idea. There was a slow, gentle, steady drift in thinking and in action so that the church ended up in a place that wasn't remotely looking like Jesus. And why we're in community is to help one another stay focused and not drift out in that way. And it's always good to ask questions about whether we're really focused on Jesus. So did Jesus live like that? Have you heard the prosperity teaching? I remember someone who said, I always buy a Lexus because that's what Jesus would want me to drive because he's the, the king of the universe and all resources at his command. And I'm, I'm sat there and thought two thoughts. One is, if Jesus can get me anything and my ambition is only a Lexus, what's wrong with me? <laughs> but also... What on earth has that got to do with Jesus of Nazareth that walked the earth for three years? Friend of sinners, has nowhere to lay his head. Simply asking those kind of questions gets you back and focus. Did Jesus react like that to people? Well, if he didn't, maybe our reactions are wrong. So there's this danger that we'll drift unless we deal with issues. And then just in case we've misunderstood him, in verses 9 to 13, he points out that the issue is not we need to cut ourselves off from the world out there so that we can just be a holy and pure community. Have you noticed that all the Christian groups that want no contact with the world ending up just being rather, well, dull and judgmental? Because they've missed the point. Jesus says, uh, Paul says, remember the company Jesus kept. What was the insult they threw at Jesus? He's the friend of sinners. And it's just like Jesus said, oh, thank you for the compliment. People thought he associates with dodgy people. He goes to the strangest dinner parties. And there are immoral people around him. And Paul says... That's not wrong. That's the way of Jesus. There are, of course, points at which particular people are in danger of influencing us more than we influence them. And there are times in specific situations where we have to back off 
course that's true. But our calling is to be a friend of sinners, not cut off from friends outside of the church. And at the same time, he says, striving for purity within the church family. And he comes out with an interesting, interesting list. Verse 11, but I'm now writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. It's perhaps slightly unfortunate that the big example we get here is one of sexual immorality. Not, not to say that that's unimportant, of course, faithfulness within the marriage bonds is really important. But we do have an evangelical tendency to judge everything by the one yardstick of sexuality. And there are lots of other issues here. I was fascinated studying for this to discover that Martin Luther, the great reformer, had threatened to excommunicate someone from the church because he intended to sell a house for 400 gulden, which he purchased for 30 in which everyone agreed that a fair price was 150. Isn't that shocking? Why is that shocking? The idea that somehow greed is not good business, it's wrong. That is actually quite shocking in the current age. So it's not just sex that's the issue, sex and greed and integrity, and so forth. We're being called here to be a community helping one another to grow into the image of Christ. So I want to finish just by asking you three questions. And much as I'm asking you, I'm asking myself. And the first question is this. Where do my values and behaviour come from? Where do my values and behaviour come from? Are they from Jesus? Is my goal to live the way he calls me to live? Or am I just absorbing like a sponge the values of the culture around about me? One former Archbishop of Canterbury said memorably, anyone who marries the spirit of the age will be a widow in the next. Anyone who marries the spirit of the age will be a widow in the next. I grew up in an era in the church where um, the great things you weren't allowed to do were go to the cinema or wear lipstick. And actually, in those days, only, people only assumed that it was the girls that wore lipstick. Uh, and that was the kind of hallmark of spirituality, that you didn't do those things. Strange, weird. We live in a culture now where almost anything goes except for certain liberal values which are absolute even though you don't believe in absolutes. Fascinating. And you either choose to swim against the tide or you just get pushed along. Are we starting at the right place with Jesus and the teaching of scripture or just with the influence of friends and the society around about us? The second question I want to ask is a more practical one. Are you part of a sustaining and challenging community? It's really just not healthy to do Christianity on our own plus a Sunday service. You won't be able to contribute much. 
You won't get to know people well enough so that you can have those family-type discussions where someone knows you and is asking the penetrating question. Places where we find challenge, not judgment, but support when we need it. Are you part of a community? So I don't think it's healthy not to be, frankly. And thirdly, finally, is the Lord speaking to you about a specific issue? Now, I did ask my own community that I'm part of, linked, uh, to pray for me, because I was finding it challenging preparing this talk. And um, they, they, they came up with a really helpful suggestion that, Ian, a good way you could close is just by saying, um, if you're sleeping with your mother-in-law, please come to the front. <laughs> Thank you, friends. Great team. Not helpful. But if that is you, please make sure you ask for a member of Linked. Have you got that? To pray for you, and I will find them. <laughs> the truth is, most of our problems are not of that scale. And yet we all have things that God is putting his finger on in our lives. Whether they're unresolved for four months or four years or 40 years, there's a moment where God says, shall we deal with this now, Ian? No. <laughs> Maybe yes. <laughs> and you'll know what those issues are for you. So three questions. Where do my values and behaviour come from? Are you part of a sustaining and challenging community? And is the Lord speaking to you about a specific issue? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your word doesn't shirk the difficult issues. That you love us so much that you really don't want us living in the same way. And thank you, Lord, for putting us in a community of love and concern and challenge when we need it. Lord, help us, we pray, to walk with you, understanding your grace and demonstrating it to others, but also grasping your truth and being willing to live in it and, where necessary, to challenge others. Lord, you know how hard we find it to get that balance right between grace and truth and holiness. But we ask you, Lord, that more and more that might be a hallmark of our lives together. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>